Part One of Chapter Eight of the Loss of the SS Titanic. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Allison Hester. Chapter Eight: The Lessons Taught by the Loss of the Titanic. One of the most pitiful things in the relations of human beings to each other, the action and reaction of events that is called concretely human life is that every now and then some of them should be called upon to lay down their lives from no sense of imperative, calculated duty, such as inspires the soldier or the sailor, but suddenly, without any previous knowledge or warning of danger, without any opportunity of escape, and without any desire to risk such conditions of danger of their own free will. It is a blot on our civilization that these things are necessary from time to time to arouse those responsible for the safety of human life from the lethargic selfishness which has governed them. The Titanic's 2,000-odd passengers went aboard thinking they were on an absolutely safe ship, and all the time there were many people, designers, builders, experts, government officials, who knew there were insufficient boats on board, and that the Titanic had no right to go fast in iceberg regions, who knew these things, and took no steps, and enacted no laws to prevent their happening. Not that they omitted to do these things deliberately, but were lulled into a state of selfish inaction, from which it needed such a tragedy as this to arouse them. It was a cruel necessity which demanded that a few should die to arouse many millions to a sense of their own insecurity, to the fact that for years the possibility of such a disaster has been imminent. Passengers have known none of these things, and while no good end would have been served by relating to them needless tales of danger on the high seas, one thing is certain, that, had they known them, many would not have traveled in such conditions, and thereby safeguards would have soon been forced on the builders, the companies, and the government. But there were people who knew and did not fail to call attention to the dangers. In the House of Commons, the matter has been frequently brought up privately, and an American naval officer, Captain E. K. Bowden, in an article that has since been widely reproduced, called attention to the defects of this very ship, the Titanic, taking her as an example of all other liners, and pointed out that she was not unsinkable and had not proper boat accommodation. The question, then, of responsibility for the loss of the Titanic must be considered, not from any idea that blame should be laid here or there and a scapegoat provided, that is a waste of time. But if a fixing of responsibility leads to quick and efficient remedy, then it should be done relentlessly. Our simple duty to those whom the Titanic carried down with her demands no less. Dealing first with the precautions for the safety of the ship, as apart from safety appliances, there can be no question. I suppose that the direct responsibility for the loss of the Titanic and so many lives must be laid on her captain. He was responsible for setting the course, day by day and hour by hour, for the speed she was traveling, and he alone would have the power to decide whether or not speed must be slackened with icebergs ahead. No officer would have any right to interfere in the navigation, although they would no doubt be consulted. Nor would any official connected with the management of the line, Mr. Ismay, for example, 
be allowed to direct the captain in these matters, and there is no evidence that he ever tried to do so. The very fact that the captain of a ship has such absolute authority increases his responsibility enormously. Even supposing the White Star Line and Mr. Ismay had urged him before sailing to make a record, again an assumption, they cannot be held directly responsible for the collision. He was in charge of the lives of everyone on board, and no one but he was supposed to estimate the risk of traveling at the speed he did when ice was reported ahead of him. His action cannot be justified on the ground of prudent seamanship. But the question of indirect responsibility raises at once many issues, and, I think, removes from Captain Smith a good deal of personal responsibility for the loss of his ship. Some of these issues it will be well to consider. In the first place, disabusing our minds again of the knowledge that the Titanic struck an iceberg and sank, let us estimate the probabilities of such a thing happening. An iceberg is small and occupies little room by comparison with the broad ocean on which it floats. And the chances of another small object, like a ship, colliding with it and being sunk are very small. The chances are, as a matter of fact, one in a million. This is not a figure of speech. That is the actual risk for total loss by collision with an iceberg as accepted by insurance companies. The one in a million accident was what sunk the Titanic. Even so, had Captain Smith been alone in taking that risk, he would have had to bear all the blame for the resulting disaster. But it seems he is not alone. The same risk has been taken over and over again by fast mail passenger liners, in fog and in iceberg regions. Their captains have taken the long, very long, chance many times and won every time. He took it as he had done many times before and lost. Of course, the chances that night of striking an iceberg were much greater than one in a million. They had been enormously increased by the extreme southerly position of icebergs and field ice and by the unusual number of the former. Thinking over the scene that met our eyes from the deck of the Carpathia after we boarded her, the great number of icebergs wherever the eye could reach, the chances of not hitting one in the darkness of the night seemed small. Indeed, the more one thinks about the Carpathia coming at full speed through all those icebergs in the darkness, the more inexplicable does it seem. True, the captain had an extra lookout watch, and every sense of every man on the bridge alert to detect the least sign of danger. And again, he was not going so fast as the Titanic, and would have his ship under more control. But granted all that, he appears to have taken a great risk as he dodged and twisted around the awful 200-foot monsters in the dark night. Does it mean that the risk is not so great as we who have seen the abnormal and not the normal side of taking risks with icebergs might suppose? He had his own ship and passengers to consider, and he had no right to take too great a risk. But Captain Smith could not know icebergs were there in such numbers. What warnings he had of them is not yet thoroughly established. There were probably three, but it is in the highest degree unlikely that he knew that any vessel had seen them in such quantities as we saw them Monday morning, 
In fact, it is unthinkable. He thought, no doubt, that he was taking an ordinary risk, and it turned out to be an extraordinary one. To read some criticisms, it would seem as if he deliberately ran his ship in defiance of all custom through a region infested with icebergs, and did a thing which no one has ever done before, that he outraged all precedent by not slowing down. But it is plain that he did not. Every captain who has run full speed through fog and iceberg regions is to blame for the disaster as much as he is. They got through, and he did not. Other liners can go faster than the Titanic could possibly do. Had they struck ice, they would have been injured even more deeply than she was. For it must not be forgotten that the force of the impact varies as the square of the velocity, i.e., it is four times as much at sixteen knots as at eight knots, nine times as much at twenty-four, and so on. And with not much margin of time left for these fast boats, they must go full speed ahead nearly all the time. Remember how they advertised to leave New York Wednesday, dine in London the following Monday. And it is done regularly, much as an express train is run to time. Their officers, too, would have been less able to avoid a collision than Murdoch of the Titanic was, for at the greater speed they would be on the iceberg in a shorter time. Many passengers can tell of crossing with fog a good deal of the way, sometimes all the way, and they have been only a few hours late at the end of the journey. So that it is, the custom that is at fault, not one particular captain, Custom is established largely by demand, and supply, too, is the answer to demand. What the public demanded, the White Star Line supplied, and so both the public and the line are concerned with the question of indirect responsibility. The public has demanded more and more every year, greater speed as well as greater comfort, and by ceasing to patronize, the low-speed boats has gradually forced the pace to what it is at present. Not that speed in itself is a dangerous thing. It is sometimes much safer to go quickly than slowly. But that, given the facilities for speed and the stimulus exerted by the constant public demand for it, occasions arise when the judgment of those in command of a ship becomes swayed, largely unconsciously, no doubt, in favor of taking risks which the smaller liners would never take. The demand on the skipper of a boat like the Californian, for example, which lay hove to nineteen miles away with her engines stopped, is infinitesimal compared with that on Captain Smith. An old traveler told me on the Carpathia that he has often grumbled to the officers for what he called absurd precautions in lying to and wasting his time which he regarded as very valuable. But after hearing of the Titanic's loss, he recognized that he was, to some extent, responsible for the speed at which she had traveled, and would never be so again. He had been one of the traveling public, who had constantly demanded to be taken to his journey's end in the shortest time possible, and had made a row about it if he was likely to be late. There are some businessmen to whom five or six days on board are exceedingly irksome and represent a waste of time. Even an hour saved at the journey's end is a consideration to them. 
and if the demand is not always a conscious one, it is there as an unconscious factor, always urging the highest speed of which the ship is capable. The man who demands fast travel unreasonably must undoubtedly take his share in the responsibility. He asks to be taken over at a speed which will land him in something over four days. He forgets, perhaps, that Columbus took 90 days in a 40-ton boat, and that only 50 years ago, paddle steamers took six weeks, and all the time the demand is greater and the strain is more. The public demand speed and luxury. The lines supply it. Until presently, the safety limit is reached, the undue risk is taken, and the Titanic goes down. All of us who have cried for greater speed must take our share in the responsibility. The expression of such a desire and the discontent with so-called slow travel are the seed sown in the minds of men, to bear fruit presently in an insistence on greater speed. We may not have done so directly, but we may, perhaps, have talked about it and thought about it, and we know no action begins without thought. The White Star Line has received very rough handling from some of the press, but the greater part of this criticism seems to be unwarranted and to arise from the desire to find a scapegoat. After all, they had made better provision for the passengers the Titanic carried than any other line has done, for they had built what they believed to be a huge lifeboat, unsinkable in all ordinary conditions. Those who embarked in her were almost certainly in the safest ship, along with the Olympic, afloat. She was probably quite immune from the ordinary effects of wind, waves, and collisions at sea, and needed to fear nothing but running on a rock, or, what was worse, a floating iceberg. For the effects of collision were, so far as damage was concerned, the same as if it had been a rock, and the danger greater, for one is charted and the other is not. Then, too, while the theory of the unsinkable boat has been destroyed at the same time as the boat itself, we should not forget that it served a useful purpose on deck that night. It eliminated largely the possibility of panic, and those rushes for the boats which might have swamped some of them. I do not wish for a moment to suggest that such things would have happened, because the more information that comes to hand of the conduct of the people on board, the more wonderful seems the complete self-control of all, even when the last boats had gone and nothing but the rising waters met their eyes, only that the generally entertained theory rendered such things less probable. The theory, indeed, was really a safeguard, though built on false premise. There is no evidence that the White Star Line instructed the captain to push the boat or to make any records. The probabilities are that no such attempt would be made on the first trip. The general instructions to their commanders bear quite the other interpretation. It will be well to quote them in full as issued to the press during the sittings of the United States Senate Committee. Instructions to Commanders Commanders must distinctly understand that the issue of regulations does not in any way relieve them from the responsibility for the safe and efficient navigation of their respective vessels, 
and they are also enjoined to remember that they must run no risks which might by any possibility result in accident to their ships it is to be hoped that they will ever bear in mind that the safety of the lives and property entrusted to their care is the ruling principle that should govern them in the navigation of their vessels and that no supposed gain in expedition or saving of time on the voyage is to be purchased at the risk of accident commanders are reminded that the steamers are to a great extent uninsured and that their own livelihood as well as the company's success depends upon immunity from accident no precaution which ensures safe navigation is to be considered excessive nothing could be plainer than these instructions and had they been obeyed the disaster would never have happened they warn commanders against the only thing left as a menace to their unsinkable boat the lack of precaution which ensures safe navigation in addition the white star line had complied to the full extent with the requirements of the british government their ship had been subjected to an inspection so rigid that as one officer remarked in evidence it became a nuisance the board of trade employs the best experts and knows the dangers that attend ocean travel and the precautions that should be taken by every commander if these precautions are not taken it will be necessary to legislate until they are no motorist is allowed to careen at full speed along a public highway in dangerous conditions and it should be an offense for a captain to do the same on the high seas with a ship full of unsuspecting passengers they have entrusted their lives to the government of their country through its regulations and they are entitled to the same protection in mid-atlantic as they are in oxford street or broadway the open sea should no longer be regarded as a neutral zone where no country's police laws are operative of course there are difficulties in the way of drafting international regulations many governments would have to be consulted and many difficulties that seem insuperable overcome but that is the purpose for which governments are employed that is why experts and ministers of governments are appointed and paid to overcome difficulties for people who appoint them and who expect them among other things to protect their lives the american government must share the same responsibility it is useless to attempt to fix it on the british board of trade for the reason that the boats were built in england and inspected there by british officials they carried american citizens largely and entered american ports it would have been the simplest matter for the united states government to veto the entry of any ship which did not conform to its laws of regulating speed in conditions of fog and icebergs had they provided such laws the fact is that the american nation has practically no mercantile marine and in time of a disaster such as this it forgets perhaps that it has exactly the same right and therefore the same responsibility as the british government to inspect and to legislate the right that is easily enforced by refusal to allow entry the regulation of speed in dangerous regions could well be undertaken by some fleet of international police patrol vessels with power to stop if necessary any boat found guilty of reckless racing the additional duty of warning ships of the exact locality of icebergs could be performed by these boats it would not of course be possible or advisable 
to fix a speed limit because the region of icebergs varies in a position as the icebergs float south varies in point of danger as they melt and disappear and the whole question has to be left largely to the judgment of the captain on the spot but it would be possible to make it an offence against the law to go beyond a certain speed in known conditions of danger so much for the question of regulating speed on the high seas the secondary question of safety appliances is governed by that same principle that in the last analysis it is not the captain not the passenger not the builders and owners but the governments through their experts who are to be held responsible for the provision of life-saving devices morally of course the owners and builders are responsible but at present moral responsibility is too weak an incentive in human affairs that is the miserable part of the whole wretched business to induce owners generally to make every possible provision for the lives of those in their charge to place human safety so far above every other consideration that no plan shall be left unconsidered no device left untested by which passengers can escape from a sinking ship but it is not correct to say as it has been said frequently that it is greed and dividend hunting that have characterized the policy of the steamship companies in their failure to provide safety appliances these things in themselves are not expensive they have vied with each other in making their lines attractive in point of speed size and comfort and they have been quite justified in doing so such things are the product of ordinary competition between commercial houses where they have all failed morally is to extend to their passengers the consideration that places their lives as of more interest to them than any other conceivable thing they are not alone in this thousands of other people have done the same thing and would do it today in factories in workshops in mines did not the government intervene and insist on safety precautions the thing is a defect in human life of today thoughtlessness for the well-being of our fellow men and we are all guilty of it in some degree it is folly for the public to rise up now and condemn the steamship companies their failing is the common failing of the immorality of indifference the remedy is the law and it is the only remedy at present that will really accomplish anything the british law on the subject dates from eighteen ninety four and requires only twenty boats for a ship the size of the titanic the owners and builders have obeyed this law and fulfilled their legal responsibility increase this responsibility and they will fulfill it again and the matter is ended so far as appliances are concerned it should perhaps be mentioned that in a period of ten years only nine passengers were lost on british ships the law seemed to be sufficient in fact the position of the american government however is worse than that of the british government its regulations require more than double the boat accommodation which british regulations do and yet it has allowed hundreds of thousands of its subjects to enter its ports on boats that defied its own laws had their government not been guilty of the same indifference passengers would not have been allowed aboard any british ship lacking in boat accommodation the simple expedient again of refusing entry the reply of the british government to the senate committee accusing the board of trade of insufficient requirements and lax inspection 
might well be, Ye have a law, see to it yourselves. End of part one of chapter eight.